Today's lecture, as you'll note, is co-sponsored by our friends at James Madison's Montpelier, and with us to talk about the, uh, the home's most famous female occupant is Kat Imhoff, the president and CEO of Montpelier and the Montpelier Foundation. She's among the first of the generation of women to now oversee all aspects of a national historic site. And under her leadership, Montpelier has become an absolute leader in the research of slavery in the early republic, and it has grown and advanced in almost every way imaginable. It's been quite fun to watch at a distance of the great work that's happening there. Before joining Montpelier in January 2013, Kat served as state director for the Nature Conservancy in Montana, and before that as vice president and chief operating officer for Thomas Jefferson's, uh, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at, at Monticello. She's also served as executive director of the Preservation Alliance of Virginia among many important roles here in the state. She is truly one of the great stars in the Virginia Museum community, and we're so thrilled to co-sponsor this lecture, but to have her to speak with all of you today. Please join me in welcoming Kat Imhoff. Well, I really am thrilled to be here, and I was joking that they obviously don't have a lot of Wahoo fans because, but any of you who, uh, if the, the score gets really interesting, if you could signal, and we'll pause to hear what's going on, because it's starting here. Um, I have to start this uh, evening with a quote from Dolly Madison, of course. I sometimes wish myself with you for a while, for I love Richmond because there is so much soul, so much real kindness in its enlightened society. This is from 1812, so she did. There is so much that everybody knows, right, about Dolly Madison. We remember <laughs> her as the America's quintessential hostess, the elegant style-setting first lady, and of course the heroic well, figure that helped rescue George Washington's portrait. But for over a century, after Dolly Madison, American companies used her name to sell everything, right? From bedspreads to snake cakes, uh, snake, <laughs> snake, snack cakes, sorry, that's a spoonerism, <laughs> ice cream, and they really crystallized sort of her image into this um, ideal woman, the epitome of gracious hospitality. But I hope to prove to you uh, this afternoon that Dolly's legacy in life was so much more than that stereotype. In fact, Dolly shaped this nation by using hospitality to achieve political ends. She was always loyal and very devoted to her husband, and she was an invaluable support when he was a congressman, secretary of state, and of course advanced his life uh, into the presidency. And she were, I believe, she and James were the original power couple. She also played a really critical role in shaping the social protocol of that brand new capital, Washington, D.C., and thus how we governed ourselves in our early days. And she did it with a totally unique style. Bright, lively, charming, warm, a, quote, foe to dullness in every form, a good friend said of Dolly. And she was also very resourceful and shrewd. But as usual, I kind of get ahead of myself, so let's just take a step back and answer the question, who was Dolly before she helped define the role of the first lady of the nation? What do we know about her? Well, she always considered herself a Virginian, although honestly, she was born in North Carolina. And in fact, this is her 250th birthday this year. 
Uh, her parents, John and Mary uh, Cole Payne, had moved from Virginia to a Quaker community in North Carolina where they lived for three years. And I love the adult Dolly. She always just talked about this as a brief visit to relatives. Um, they did move back to Virginia when she was one years old, so I guess she gets that right. She had seven siblings uh, that survived to adulthood, though only three make it past their 20s. And in 1783, her father's Quaker conscience led him to a decision to free his slaves. Now, manumission had become legal in Virginia in 1782, and a majority of the Virginia Quakers freed their slaves. And by 1784, you had to free your slaves in order to remain a Quaker. So her father did, and looking for a way to support the family without having enslaved people, uh, Dolly's father moved all of them to Philadelphia, which was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in America and the largest Quaker uh, community. Now, Dolly makes an amazing impression uh, at the very beginning. Here's a quote from Quaker Anthony Morris. And I don't know if you, how you think about Quakers, but I always think of them as pretty buttoned-down, plain people, right? Here's the quote. She came upon our comparatively cold hearts in Philadelphia suddenly and unexpectedly with all the delightful influences of a summer sun, and soon she raised the mercury in the thermometers of the heart to fever heat. <laughs> That's Dolly. So now Dolly made quite a different impression on some of the stricter Quaker ladies. They found fault with her capes and her gowns, probably because they were a little too worldly and stylish. Dolly was never the most model of Quaker. As a child, for example, she had treasured gifts that had come from her grandmother's old-fashioned jewelry, and she kept them in a little bag around her neck, you know, lest she offend anybody with the jewelry. And on a walk through the woods one day, the string broke, and she lost all of the jewelry. And she, she talks about this being like the first sort of heartbreak, you know, in, in her young childhood. Uh, after moving to Philadelphia, Dolly's father started up a laundry starch-making business. But he really wasn't very good at it, and he found himself bankrupt. And in addition to that, you could not be in bankruptcy and remain a Quaker either, and he was read out of the church he so loved. And this is really the first blow uh, to Dolly's young life, was the plunge of her father into a deep depression. He went to bed, and he died in his bed three years later at the age of 52. And Dolly and her uh, siblings, a mother, really felt the pinch of hard times. Her mother, being uh, maybe having a better head for business, took the house and made it into a boarding house for congressmen. And this is going to play an important role later in Dolly's life. So just remember that little tidbit. Ever the dutiful daughter, or maybe not so dutiful, but on her father's deathbed, he really asked her to marry a young Quaker lawyer named John Todd, which she did. And the couple had two children together. And you know, her life looked pretty bright young, up-and-coming lawyer. And we would probably never have heard about Dolly Madison, or certainly not Dolly, but the yellow fever epidemic swept through Philadelphia in the summer of 1793. It killed first her in-laws, and then it killed her husband and infant son on the same day. She was actually um, sick, but obviously recovered. So by the time Dolly meets uh, Congressman James Madison, she's already had a lot of grief in her life. As this young widow with a toddler son, Dolly started to attract a fair share of interest in Philadelphia. An acquaintance later wrote about her, her smile, her conversation, 
Her manners are so engaging that it is no wonder that such a young widow with her fine blue eyes and large share of animation should be indeed a queen of hearts. So I've got some props next. She is a 26-year-old widow. He is a 43-year-old bachelor. <laughs> I know. I couldn't help myself. She is voluptuous at 5'8". He is a slender, depending if you liked him, he was, if you liked him, you said he was 5'6", and if you didn't like him, you said he was 5'2". <laughs> On the surface, they really did not have much in common, but in the years ahead, their marriage is going to be both a loving reunion and a political partnership that we've never seen the likes of. In fact, Madison saw Dolly on the streets of Philadelphia when he was walking with his buddy Aaron Burr. They were uh, colleagues from Princeton, right? And he asked uh, Aaron Burr to introduce him, and that started it all. Dolly sends a note to her dear friend Eliza Collins Lee. Thou must come to me. Aaron Burr says that the great little Madison has asked him to bring him to see me this morning. So that's how that all started. And as the courtship progressed, another friend and relation, Catherine Coles, passed on this message to Dolly from James Madison. Now this is what, by the way, just a heads up, we are not in the repressed Victorian period. <laughs> now for Mr. Madison, he told me I might say what I pleased to you about him. To begin with, he thinks so much of you in the day that he has lost his tongue at night he dreams of you and starts in his sleep a calling on you to relieve his flame, for he burns <laughs> to such an excess that he will shortly be consumed, and he hopes your heart will be callous to every other swain but himself. He has consented to everything I have wrote about him with sparkling eyes. How could you refuse that, right? <laughs> so by the late summer, Dolly accepts James' proposal, and the wedding is set for September 15, 1794. And for the next two years, Dolly is a congressman's wife. However, with the inauguration of John Adams as president in 1797, James Madison and Dolly retired to Montpelier, where they're for a couple years, only to come back in 19, 1801. Uh, and he's going to be, Madison's going to be Thomas Jefferson's secretary of state. And of course, finally, he becomes president. With her husband's return to politics, Dolly is returned to Washington, DC, the city she is going to ultimately conquer. Now, Dolly's role as a political wife revolved around being a hostess, but it went so much further than just planning menus or guest lists. She used, I would say, even maybe weaponized traditional female skills like emotional intelligence and empathy to bring political adversaries together in social settings and consequently to further her husband's career. And this was very important because you know, if you think back to the earliest days of our nation, you know, we were really brilliant and went long on constitutions. What an amazing document. But on the more practical side of life, city of Washington was in its infancy, and it was literally a muddy, rural, swampy, ramshackle of a place. And in the absence of many bureaucratic or administrative channels to get things done, social gatherings were the where you could get the work and get people together to make things happen. Um, and lest we forget, politics was fraught with conflict in this period. So much was at stake in charting this new course of this nation, uh, so much so that there were actually fisticuffs on the floor of Congress, and people would go out to Rappahannock County and fight duels. So it's, it's, it's a little bit better today. Um, and with the French Revolution, 
with its very radical democratic ideals, had very deeply polarized the Federalists and the Republicans. There was not much of meeting of minds. So when Dolly starts holding gatherings, they are foremost these welcoming neutral spaces where political differences can kind of be addressed and passions and beliefs can be sort of expressed without any loss of dignity. They're a safe zone. And also, let's face it, there wasn't really much else to do in Washington, D.C. So Dolly had, as the wife of the Secretary of State, she'd already begun setting a tone for socializing in Washington under uh, Jefferson's administration. Jefferson is, of course, a widower. But even if his wife had been alive to serve as his hostess, he still strongly disapproved of lavish state receptions, dinners, and balls. He thought them very ostentatious, courtly, and not Republican. And women he also thought of as both unpredictable and a corrupting influence. <laughs> so the final thing is he always liked to control the political discourse. So one night he might have all Federalists over, and the other night he'd have all Republicans over, but he would never mix, mix things up. Meanwhile, Dolly, like her husband's, is very practical realist. She's trying to make this theory of men of virtue serving the republic actually work. And rather than fighting people's natural social tendencies, she's busy working with them. So she brings people of different opinions together. And she includes women, because rather than seeing women as unpredictable and corrupting, she actually thought they could be very important as civilizing force. Men would maybe be forced to be more polite around them. Tempers would be calmed. Better discussion would ensue. One example where we can see this play out, and many of you may know about this, but it was called, even in its time, the Mary Affair. So President Jefferson, when he got in office, decided to create a new style, which he called pell-mell. We might say helter-skelter today. And he, it was as far away as you could get from sort of the aristocratic manners of the royal court. Remember, again, no one knew what we wanted our protocol to be. No one had protocol for a republic. Um, in fact, there's this great letter that Madison writes to Jefferson just about this subject. Madison says, we are in a wilderness without a single footstep to guide us. Our successors will have an easier task, and by degrees, the way will become smooth, short, and certain. And I love this quote because uh, Jefferson did exactly the opposite. He, um, and for him, the way was not smooth at the beginning. So the first incident, Anthony Mary arrives from Washington, and he is a representative of Great Britain. And Jefferson meets Mary for the first time. Uh, Jefferson is dressed in his bathrobe and slippers. Does not go over well. So then next, Jefferson decides, I, you know, I'm going to host a welcoming dinner. And since the Marys are the guests of honor for this dinner, uh, Elizabeth Mary would have been expected to be taken into dinner first by the highest ranking man, which would be President Jefferson, and then her husband, Mr. Mary, Ambassador Mary, would have taken the second ranking woman, which would have been Dolly. In this new pell-mell style, uh, Jefferson dispenses with all of that, and he grabs Dolly's arm to escort her into the dining room. And she's frantically whispering to him, take Mrs. Mary, take Mrs. Mary. He ignores the advice. James Madison then escorts Elizabeth Mary in, and the ambassador walks in without anybody on his arm. We think it's humorous, but it was scandalous. It was embarrassing, and it was in the papers all over Europe. <laughs> And worse yet, the, the Madisons hold a dinner, and a similar thing happens. 
So as a result of all these incidents, which he considered tremendous snubs, Ambassador Mary began only gathering a few, going to a few gatherings, and he didn't take his wife, and he encouraged all the other foreign ministers to follow his example, uh, meaning that there was gonna be very few opportunities for diplomacy to go forward and for American politicians to get to know one another. It was not a good situation. So Dolly took it upon herself, really mended friends, fences with Mrs. Mary, became her best friend, even though I don't know that she particularly liked her. And Dolly may have also felt that things had gotten really out of hand because Jefferson's opponents took him to task not only for his role in what was called the Mary Affair, but they also started fabricating stories that Jefferson had had an affair with Dolly or was pimping Dolly out to the <laughs> diplomatic corps. Seriously. So Dolly's understanding of diplomacy went much, much deeper than just mending fences. Um, although her sense of appropriate feminine behavior made her claim to be less interested in politics than she actually was. When, when she was in Philadelphia for medical treatment for a knee, which was a very rare time she was separated from James, they were almost always uh, in each other's back pockets. Uh, so she wrote him a letter inquiring, quote, some information respecting the war with Spain in disagreement with England, as it is so generally expected here that I am at a loss what to surmise. But I'm extremely anxious to hear on the subject. I believe you would not desire your wife to be the active partisan, but dot, dot, dot. So James recognized that Dolly's diffidence was what, you know, he recognized it for what it was, which was a bit of a pretense. He replies in this very thoughtful analysis of the potential for war that respected Dolly's intelligence, and then he closed with a statement of the party line that Dolly could safely repeat, and this is from James. The power, however, of deciding questions of war lies with Congress, and that is always our answer to newsmongers. <laughs> so as befitted Republican wives and mothers, women from every social sphere stayed very well informed and engaged in political matters, uh, matters during that time period. And many ladies of Washington, including uh, Mrs. Madison, went to the galleries of Congress and went and listened in on the Supreme Court. Yet Dolly always remained, or at least appeared to, above the political fray. She often quoted her formula for this nonpartisan sentiment, saying, I confess I do not admire the contentions of parties, political or civil. I would rather fight with my hand than my tongue. So the White House is not the only place where Dolly is practicing politics. She and her uh, sister Anna would obviously uh, host sometimes at the White House uh, when President Jefferson had women in the company. But Dolly is entertaining even more at the Madison's home on F Street, and it's the new power hub. Margaret Baird Smith records that uh, about this situation. After the president's house, the house of the Secretary of State was the resort of most company. Even party spirit, virulent and embittered as it was then by her gentleness, was disarmed of his asperity. Individuals who never visited at the president's nor met at any other ministerial houses could not resist the softening influences of her disposition. So Dolly's hospitality had a couple of purposes. One, of course, she's creating the social sphere where political opponents could interact cordially. 
And as the presidential election of 1808 is approaching, she's beginning to smooth the path for her husband to succeed Jefferson. Now, Madison never liked to campaign for himself, and it was considered very unseemly, frankly, to do that kind of campaigning. But social skills of Dolly could put him far and ahead. In fact, Congressman Mitchell wrote to his wife that Dolly was a secret weapon in the election of 1808. She contrasted James Madison, who he, who he said, gives dinners and makes generous display to the members with another Democratic Republican, George Clinton, snug in his lodgings and keeps aloof from such captivating exhibitions. The Secretary of State has a wife to aid his pretensions, and, has n and Clinton has nothing a female suker. Uh, and the other great quote of that, um, that race was when the Federalist candidate lost uh, to James Madison, he uh, said, I was beaten by Mr. and Mrs. Madison. <laughs> I might have a better chance had I faced Mr. Madison alone. <laughs> So finally, in March of 1809, Dolly finds herself center stage as wife of the president. Of course, she had the experience hostessing on F Street in the White House. She knew how to put her skills of sociability to use in all these causes. And she also knew what it was like to face unwarranted criticism simply for being in the public eye. So now it's time for her to put all these lessons to good work. And she accomplished all that she did with this amazing, unique style. And style was very important to this young nation. You know, what we had done was unprecedented in the world. We'd set up this republic protecting the natural rights of its citizens. And we had this entirely new way of working together as a political body in a world where most power was still held by very, very few people. So how we did things was going to, in a way, define who we would become. And every government needs some kind of protocol to function. But the only model that we were really familiar with was the European courts. So we needed a new American way of how to be. And Dolly got that. First of all, she understood that personal attire is actually a political message. And if it's done right, it can be a very powerful one. After James was elected president, she knew she needed to wear clothes that were had both grandeur, but not too much, right? You got to hit that balance. It's still a republic, so you've got to be elegant, but you also have to acknowledge that we're a government that's based on merit and ability. And so she chose the Grecian lines of the empire style, stately, striking, but simple. And she also struck the right note with her husband's attire. He would modestly wear, and he did at the inauguration, American-raised merino lamb, right, wool. And she dressed with Republican simplicity rather than royal pretensions. And at the very first inaugural ball, which was James and Dolly Madison's, uh, she even chose to wear American pearls over the more aristocratic diamonds that were not from America. So it was impossible to please everyone. And of course, Dolly had her fashion critics. One relative by marriage talked about uh, the Madison family, saying, the Madison kith and kin do not like Dolly. They heard too much of her low neckline and her short sleeves and her turban and her gay life in Washington society. And others mocked Dolly, calling her our queen, Dala Lala. But the effects of uh, her taste and judgment were usually very gratifying, and her attire was frequently described in fashion by the fashion mavens of the day 
and sought uh, to be imitated by many. She was considered American's Republican queen, neither too regal nor too common. And let's face it, Dolly could be the showy one of the two of them. James Madison was soft-spoken, slight, always mostly wore a little, you know, black suit, and he was nowhere near the charismatic male figure, which was frankly feared in the Republic. People did not want someone to become the king. It was okay for him to be this more kind of mild-mannered. And she could also make Madison more popular by being that glittering presence. She had another area that was really important in terms of impact, and that was decorating the White House. She um, really needed to do this because up to this point, the Adams had lived there, but it was unfinished, and Abigail Adams actually hung her laundry in what we now call the East Room. And <laughs> Thomas Jefferson had made architectural improvements to the mansion, but he'd furnished it with some belongings from Monticello, and he, he took those. So Congressman, um, Congress did appropriate $20,000, and Madison selected Henry, um, Benjamin Henry Latrobe to supervise the work. Now, at, this is a time when mostly men choose household furnishings, and James makes this very unusual choice by that time period to delegate the project to Dolly. And she really understood that this is going to be a symbol of the presidency and also of the federal government. And so she decided to choose objects that would be kind of classical Republican simplicity, but still be able to stand the test against European fashionable elegance. And she again chose this Grecian theme. Now this neoclassical style is more than just a fashion statement. It is reflecting the values of the new republic it, by honoring those ancient Republican ideals of civic virtue. And it's also saying, look, this young America, we're just as sophisticated as old Europe, and we don't have to put up with the monarchy. Dolly uh, used, as the wife of the president, this tone to really also build on the approaches that had been there before. You know, with Washington and Adams, it was pretty courtly. When you would go to meet them, they'd actually be standing in the little dais, and you would bow to them, and they would bow to you, and you would move on. And of course, we've heard about, you know, Jefferson and Helter Skelter. So she had this very elegant style, but she invited everybody. She dispensed with many of the formal social protocols, but she avoided giving anybody offense because she treated everyone the same. It was also unusual at that time period for the woman to sit at the head of the table, but this suited the Madisons the best because Dolly could really pull off any event kind of seamlessly, and Madison could sit in the center of the table, and she was able to kind of direct the conversation around, her, around him. At one point, Vice, Prender, uh, Vice President Gary, Eldridge, Eldridge Gary, tried to sit at the head of the table, like, I'll take care of that for you, Dolly. And she very firmly put him in his place. And afterwards, he wrote his daughter saying, it would have been impossible for me to have equaled her in this instance. She did everything with such elegant ease. But I can imagine that was an awkward moment. Dolly also knew what her husband's goals and difficulties were, and she could really then hone the conversation about where um, he wanted to go. And he often said he could get more done at a table uh, at the house than he could in the office all day. With the White House redecorated, Dolly was ready to establish a new form of entertaining in Washington. And these are the Wednesday evening drawing rooms, which became called squeezes. Now, Martha Jefferson had had very formal events for ladies only, where each woman came in and was very ceremoniously presented. And Thomas Jefferson had only ever held 
two public receptions a year. So, and Dolly thought one was too formal and the other not enough. And so she started greeting guests every Wednesday evening uh, in the White House anytime Congress was in session. People would wander in, they'd be greeted by the Madisons, and then they would roam around the rooms. They'd have wine and food and other things to drink. There might be musicians playing, or you as a guest might be called on to entertain, read something, or perform some music. And the guests would often be 400 people or more, hence they would literally be squeezing into the White House. So with few notable exceptions, almost everyone enjoyed the drawing rooms. But the point was that absolutely everyone was welcome, whether they were members of Madison's Democratic Republican Party, or they were the opposing Federalist Party, whether you were a foreign dignitary or just a local citizen. And Dolly was in her element, really creating this social sphere where people could interact cordially even when they were opponents, and very subtly, or not so subtly sometimes, building support for her husband's administration. Dolly created the impression that, that she was above the fray of politics. I've mentioned this a lot, and she writes about it a lot. But in reality, she understood exactly where everyone stood in relationship to her husband. In a letter she wrote to her sister Anna, which also she wrote on, please burn this letter, which thank goodness Anna didn't, she's noted that uh, during the election of 1812, the Federalists had refused to come or dine. But then after they saw so many people flocking to the White House, they, there was such a rallying of our party, it has alarmed them into a return. I love that. And Dolly could also act as her husband's surrogate. So for example, when the new young Warhawk congressmen, like Henry Clay, were talking about the war and Madison still sitting on the fence, this is before the War of 1812, Dolly could find this apolitical way of getting to bond with Clay. And in this case, they both liked to dip snuff. <laughs> Her, it was said her snuff box had a magic influence. So just as Dolly forged political and social connections to support her husband's agenda, people connected with Dolly in order that she could put their agenda in front of the president. And Dolly's female friends often asked her to wield her influence with their sons, husbands, you know, neighbors, relatives, anybody who's looking for a government job. She was the go-to, go-through gal of Washington, D.C. for political patronage. One of my interesting one was that Abigail Adams, who never liked Dolly, never met Dolly, still writes Dolly, asking Dolly's help to get her grandson a diplomatic mission. And Dolly gets it done. So that's pretty amazing. Now, the War of 1812, it, it's funny to say that somebody really shines in a war, but it was such an unpopular war. And Dolly was so wildly popular that many historians give her a fair bit of credit for Madison's second term in office. And, and the War of 1812 also created this amazing opportunity for the people of the nation to truly take Dolly to their hearts. And it earned her a place in our American legend. She became, as I like to say, the brave face of the nation. In her social events uh, and her behavior that she exhibits during the war years, she's the symbol 
of calm optimism and support. She's celebrating the victories. She's ceremonially receiving colors from captured ships and from battles won. And this whole time, she's telegraphing out to the public, hey, this is just what happened. This is what it means for us as a nation in a way that really sustains support for the war effort. And her letters during this time period are just amazing. They're just filled with spirit. So writing one of her cousins as they're beginning to put up tents, erecting them on the lawn of the White House. Already looks well to my eyes, for I have always been an advocate for fighting when assailed, though a Quaker. I therefore keep an old Tunisian saber within my reach. And she literally slept with a sword under the bed. It's true. Then referring to rumors that the arrogant British Admiral Cockburn had threatened to set fire to the president's house, she added, I do not tremble at this, but feel affronted that the admiral should send me notice that he would make his bow in my drawing room soon. Of course, we know what happens. The morning before the British invasion of Washington, Dolly reported that her husband had asked her whether I had the courage or firmness to remain in the president's house until his return, and on my assurance that I had no fear but for him and our country, he left me. So Dolly's drawing room evenings and her strategic approach to hostessing are probably her most significant contribution to the Madison-era political scene. But her one moment in time in the White House eclipses all others for its symbolism. And you know what I'm talking about. And that is the rescue of George Washington's portrait during uh, when the British were invading Washington in 1814. As Dolly told the story in a letter to her sister Lucy, she remained at the White House waiting for James to return for the from the Battle of Bladensburg, where, of course, the local militia are not successful of keeping the British out of DC. And in the meantime, she's busy directing servants to fill up a wagon with valuables that belonged to the White House. A part of this that often gets overlooked, because we focus so much on the George uh, Washington portrait, but they save the cabinet papers and Madison's papers. And to me, that becomes almost in some ways something so important that we should not lose sight of. We know so much about the founding period because those papers were not burned uh, in the White House. Zolly does order that General uh, Washington's portrait be saved and not be left to be vandalized. And it has been um, actually uh, nailed in a wooden frame to the wall. So they have to break the frame, pull out the nails, roll the portrait up, and then she puts it in good hands for safekeeping. Then and only then does she agree to evacuate. And her pluck during these perilous moments, partly true and partly mythologized uh, over time, did then and now earn the everlasting gratitude and admiration of a country. Now, in the months that followed the burning of the White House in DC, Dolly shared her loss with someone who truly appreciated the beautifully appointed rooms that she'd helped create. And that was her old friend and decorating partner, Mary Latrobe, wife to Benjamin Latrobe. She writes to her, two hours before the enemy entered the city, I left the house where Mr. Latrobe's elegant taste had been justly admired, and where you and I had so often wandered together. And on that very day, I sent out all the silver, the velvet curtains, and General Washington's picture, and a small clock and a few books, and left everything else belonging to the public, our own valuable stores of every description, a part of my clothes, all of the servants' clothes, et cetera, et cetera, 
In short, it would fatigue you to read the list of my losses. So it was a sad moment. In the wake of the burning of Washington's public buildings, there was a lot of talk that the Capitol might relocate to another city. Philadelphia and New York wanted the Capitol back. But the rebuilding began in part because Dolly really led uh, the rallying cry for Washington, D.C., and she very quickly reestablished um, kind of this social convening. And by the fall of 1814, she's already in the drawing rooms, now in the Octagon House, which is their temporary residence. She's the one who actually announces that the Treaty of Ghent has been signed and signals the end of Mr. Madison's war. You know, today we expect a First Lady to champion particular causes. We had Rosalind Carter and mental health, Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs, Barbara Bush and literacy, and Michelle Obama and childhood obesity. But that was not an expectation in Dolly's time. In fact, the idea of women organizing to create change was very, very novel. So again, Dolly is a trend center. When she is wife of the Secretary of State, she's very interested in the Lewis and Clark expedition. She knows they're not adequately provisioned. So she gets all of the other ladies of the cabin cabinet to gather money together and help outfit this. This is very sad for her because she's fairly convinced that they're never going to come back. And when she, they do, she's overjoyed. They bring her um, cookware to kind of share with her and let her have. And she, more importantly, they share all these wonderful stories and she recites them. Um, her um, nieces talk about later in her life. Then also, after the War of 1812, um, Dolly championed the Washington Orphan Asylum Society. Now, Washington is still, D.C., is still very much in the rack and ruin in the aftermath of the war. It's a very desperate place. And she becomes the first directress of the Orphan Asylum Society. She not only gives money, she does things like gives them a cow. She helps cut dress patterns for the young orphan girls and women who are there. And this might seem sort of trivial or small to us, but this early effort and is really historically significant because it shows her actively involved in this broader 19th century spirit of reform where women are beginning to organize themselves to create institutions to help other women and girls. <coughs> Now, sadly, the Madison administration comes to an end in 1817. Now, James Madison, after his second term, he could not have been happier. A friend described him a schoolboy on a long vacation when he left Washington, very happy to be going home to Montpelier. Dolly, on the other hand, is much more reluctant. Right before they leave DC, they have their portraits painted. And in this, in the, in this portrait, uh, Dolly gives a copy of it to a friend, and the friend says, oh, James Portrait it almost breathes and expresses much of the serenity of his feelings at the moment it is taken. But as a good friend, she notes that Dolly's portrait, well, there's kind of an absence of expression in your eye. There's, you know, it doesn't have that sparkle. And Dolly had, let's face it, just spent 16 years in D.C. exerting tremendous influence it was gonna be very hard for her to leave her friends and retire to the sleepy countryside of Orange, Virginia. But Dolly did indeed follow James faithfully back to Montpelier where she would largely reside for the next 19 years. 
She continued to be a hostess at Montpelier. Many people flocked to Montpelier because James Madison, unlike Jefferson, stayed literally involved in politics to almost the day he died. And Montpelier was filled with visitors during that time, whether it was extended family, friends, international visitors like Marquis de Lafayette. And Dolly, with the help of enslaved men and women, might entertain 100 people on the back lawn and think nothing of having 30 people stay overnight, night after night after night. Sometimes on rainy days, she and James would race each other under the front portico, and visitors reported seeing Dolly give James Madison piggyback rides. And then there, <laughs> they were having fun. And then there was Polly the parrot who would swoop through the hallways of Montpelier, swearing in French and terrorizing the young Madison clan. Or you can just tell, it was this lively, lively country place. And while Dolly um, clearly missed DC, she had her hands full and took on decorating Montpelier as well. And they had some visits, for example, to the University of Virginia, where Madison was the second rector, or they might go to Monticello, but mostly she was at Montpelier. I'll just give you a little hint into sort of a sadder part of her life, and that revolved around her son, Payne Todd. Remember, he's the son from the first marriage. He's now in his 30s. He's never settled in his life. He was called by some the snake in the Garden of Eden. And to, which is sort of a sad thing to say. He had bouts of drinking and gambling. We know he did help Madison some because we see his handwriting on some of the transcribed notes. But he really did have these huge binges. He would disappear. They wouldn't know sometimes where he was for months, oftentimes in debtor's prison. He wrote about himself in his journal, I can never temper things properly. It was underlined several times. So, that, so there was a lot of anxiety around him. And James put, paid for some of uh, Payne's debt, and he, and he told Dolly about it, about $20,000. Then there was a whole other amount of debt he paid for, and he never told Dolly, but he said, you know, once I'm dead, tell Dolly this happened. This added up to more than a million dollars in terms of current, current numbers. So when not worrying about Payne or managing the plantation or seeing all of these guests and these extended family members, Dolly had a, another big job and that was caretaker and secretary for James Madison. She was really at his side every step of the way in editing and copying the papers, which were very important to Madison, uh, in part because he, she really hoped they were gonna help Dolly uh, with paying for debt, which they were deeply in, not just because of paying time, but a whole series of events. So Madison dies on June 28th of 1836, and Dolly is devastated. And in his will, he entrusts his, the papers to his dear wife, having entire confidence in her discreet and proper use of them. But he put a real special emphasis on the notes from the Constitutional Convention. And I am so glad for that. That is how we know some of how we got to the point we are with the form of government we have here. And he made in his will a very big emphasis that everything should be under her authority and discretion. And Dolly took to heart this role of literary agent as a dear and sacred trust. She writes about it in every letter, especially the year after Madison dies, over and over to people, this pressure. However, it is not an easy task. One, they're hoping there's gonna be a lot of money. 
but publishing was a mess at that time period. And Dolly really wasn't set up well to negotiate getting these papers published. She's a novice. She maybe offended people a little bit by asking for too much money. She got bad advice. And worst of all, she commissioned her son to help do some of the negotiation. And one of her friends wrote confidentially to another, if you are acquainted with him, you need not be told he is the last man in the world to compass this business. So luckily, her friend Henry Clay steps in. He gets Congress to help buy the papers. It comes in two installments. And it really assures Dolly some money at the end of her life. In fact, they put the second payment in a trust so that Payne can't have access to the funds. So at the end of the day, Dolly helped her husband secure his legacy in so many, many ways. But I am eternally grateful to her for all of the work on his correspondence and the notes. And it's really one of the greatest gifts to all of us. Dolly did move back to Washington in 1844, and she left Montpelier behind. It was a difficult decision, but she went to so many friends. And she's invited by every president that is seated there, Tyler, Polk, Zachary Taylor, to come to the White House. She's back in the thick of things, and she's back in the city that she loved. She dies in her sleep in July, on July 12, 1849, and her funeral procession was the largest ever seen in Washington up to that point. There were Marines carrying her casket. There were 48 horse-drawn carriages taking her to Congressional Cemetery. And thousands of thousands of people lined the streets and the bells all told. So what is Dolly Madison's legacy? Well, she was her husband's archivist. She was this fierce protector of his legacy through his papers and also by the publication. I also think a big part of her legacy is her engagement in these political events, despite being in a time period when women really weren't expected to do anything outside the house. She spent her long marriage to Madison really engaged in deep political thinking and work. She also kind of brought all these political wives to the galleries of Congress and of the Supreme Court. And she was even, after Madison's death, acknowledged for her role and given an honorary seat in the House of Representatives. She was late one day, and she arrived at the House of Representatives, and she made them go back and read what she'd missed in the first part. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Dolly was also given honors of, of the invitation to lay the first cornerstone of the Washington Monument. She sent the first telegraph in the country, and she lived long enough to be photographed in several daguerreotypes. So amazing span of life. And I think more than anything else, she really created this new kind of social protocol, a place setting a place where people could be together, mend tensions, find common ground, find ways to compromise, all in her unique style. She was a facilitator par excellence. She was the queen of society. And in her latter years, a no less commentator than Daniel Webster said of her, she's the only permanent power in Washington all others are transient. <laughs> Soon after Dolly Madison died, a newspaper obituary noted, as mistress of the White House, she was regarded as the first lady of the land. And it, this is one of the earliest instances where we hear that term, first lady, used as the title for the president's wife. And how fitting that the term should be applied to Dolly, who was the first president's wife to fully embrace the social and political dimensions of the first lady role. Henry Clay may have described her best. He said to her one day, everybody loves Mrs. Madison. And she replied, Mr. Clay, I love everybody. <laughs> and if everybody believed that, 
then Dolly Madison had done her job well. Thank you. I have to take a little survey. I have um, like a couple pictures of Montpelier. Who's been to Montpelier? And who's been to Montpelier in the last year? Oh, not bad, thank you. Um, I just wanted to remind folks, we do have 2,700 acres, and it's filled with walking trails and buildings. We have everything from, of course, the Madison period with the house and the temple, to a Jim Crow train station, to a temple. Uh, we have eight miles of trail. If you're dog friendly, bring your dog and walk on it. We have an old growth, growth forest. And if you've not been in the house for a while, you're gonna be really surprised. This is Madison's bedroom. We've added a lot of the carpets. It's very bright and bold. Someone said to me, this might be the biggest transformation of the house since the initial restoration. And this is the entrance hall where we have put up 34 oil paintings, which Madison had, and again, see kind of that lively carpet. If you did not know this, Montpelier does have one of the most unique public archaeology programs in the country. And it's why we know so much about not only Madison, but the people who were enslaved at Montpelier. You can come for a dig. We have weekend and week on wake week long programs. So if you're interested in archaeology or know someone who does, and and I would be remiss if I didn't note that in June we uh, launched a permanent new exhibition called A Mere Distinction of Color. Uh, this is telling the story of the 300 people who were enslaved at Montpelier who made Montpelier possible, and it's been an amazing process, uh, partly unique because of our work with descendants from the enslaved community. And we look at the legacy of, the, of slavery through the lens of the Constitution and, and what it means to us today as Americans. Uh, and we also run the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution, which while we do teach teachers and cops and international people, we've had 60,000 folks through the program from 110 countries and all 50 states. We also do a public programming for citizens like, like you and me. So hey, I hope you'll look at the website. And finally, since spring is almost upon us, I hope we can lure you there, of course, for the history and all of our shared American DNA, but also to come smell the flowers. And with that, I have all of five minutes and be happy to take a, a few questions if you like. We do have a mic. And please enjoy your magazine. I'm doing my moment here. <laughs> Th th thank you so much for today. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, Dolly's exposure to yellow fever, uh, did that leave her sterile and that's the reason she and James didn't have children or was pain enough reason for birth control? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a great question. I used to say, I always thought that maybe the yellow fever epidemic, but I've been assured by doctors that probably is not the case. Probably, the, the if, if fault is the right word, um, there, James Madison, as far as we know, doesn't, never had any children. Um, he didn't have with Dolly, he didn't have with anybody else that we know of. So that might have been the cause. Um, I, I beg you to read the letters of Dolly Madison. They're quite frisky. And um, I was gonna, I didn't have enough time, but I was gonna read from parts of them. And some of the letters, when James and Dolly are not with one another, I have no fear that they uh, had a lovely time with one another. <laughs> Hey, Kat, thanks hey, so much. Thank you, Ted. Did she ever say anything uh, about 
what allowed her to live such a long life. Make any comments about that? You know, no, but you, when you think back, I, I think it's pretty amazing. I think if you su uh, survived childbirth, your odds went greatly up. And Madison's mother and grandmother lived to be in their 90s. I mean, these are amazing women of that frontier period. And uh, his grandmother, you know, Ambrose Madison, uh, Madison's grandfather was poisoned by people who were enslaved. And so Madison grows up with that, but he also grows up with the fact that his grandmother never remarried and really ran that plantation. So I, I like the fact that both his mother and grandmother were very strong figures, so I don't think it intimidated him at all to meet this beautiful black-haired, blue-eyed, 5'8", forceful woman. I think it was a perfect pair. Thank you so much. Thank you all. <laughs>